Welcome to Peak Market Watch, bringing listeners the latest news in the commercial real estate industry. Every other Wednesday, Anton Matley from Peak Financing will interview a variety of investors, brokers, syndicators, vendors, and finance experts who live and breathe commercial real estate. Whether you are a commercial real estate professional or completely new to the industry, Peak Market Watch will give you an inside look into the state of the market from experts who know it best. Let's get into the show. Welcome to today's episode of Peak Market Watch with Peak with uh, market leaders in commercial real estate and related services who have a close pulse on the current market environment. My name is Anton Madley, co-founder and CEO of Peak Financing. My co-host today is John Martinez, one of our great senior debt advisors at Peak Financing. We are honored to welcome Todd Franks, executive managing partner with uh, Greystone Investment Sales Group. Welcome, Todd. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Ah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Anton. Yeah. Uh, why don't you uh, give us a little bit of a background about uh, yourself and uh, your involvement in in uh, commercial real estate and specifically multifamily? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, I started uh, brokering uh, for a small boutique firm, uh, the Cantrell Company, back in 2000. They specialized again in multifamily, kind of B and C class throughout Dallas Fort Worth. Um, had a good run there of about 14 years, um, but knew I wanted to go out and do my own thing. You know, probably a couple years, two three years before I even left, and uh, so I did. Uh, and you know, my first venture out in January of 2014, we joined the uh, SVN platform, was formerly known as Sperry Van S, um, and we had a good good run there as well. We uh, were one of the top three offices out of that network nationwide in terms of production, and. You know, myself, I finished, uh, you know, in the top 10. Uh, I think virtually every year we were a member of, of that network. Uh, so after that, um, you know, we came to the end of our five-year agreement and we could either renew or, or um, you know, uh, figure out another route. Well, uh, we always wanted to bring on uh, the debt platform, there seemed to be a, uh, you know, obvious synergy there. Uh, and great. So, you know, several firms either approached us or, you know, we reached out to them. And just before we had to make a decision, um, a gentleman named Jim McDevitt came along and uh, offered out, uh, you know, a service that Greystone had started is to join them as a joint venture partner. Uh, and, uh, it sounded like a neat deal. It brought on, you know, uh, the debt platform so we could uh, direct our clients uh, and give them, you know, uh, a bit of service in terms of, hey, we'll provide somewhat of the capital stack uh, and, you know, provide the investment sales, the debt. And, you know, the ultimate goal moving forward is to also, uh, you know, get an equity platform going to. So that's going to be my focus in the in the immediate future, I'd say the next two, three years. Um, so just, you know, continue to grow at a good pace. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, just been doing it for about, uh, you know, going on 22 years now of just multifamily brokerage, you know, generally BNC class. We have uh, formed an institutional division within the Greystone Dallas office. And, uh, you know, that's coming along well. It is something that takes a little bit of time to form. But, uh, you know, we have several 2000s in newer construction properties uh, currently that we're out to market with and several more in the pipeline. Yeah, that's uh, great to hear. Uh, would, we certainly can say that you are, when it comes to multifamily and uh, the, the Dallas market, that you are uh, one of the... Uh, the expert leaders in in that field, right? You have gone through through the cycle, uh, mm -hmm. uh, so you you know how it looked like, and then you had a, uh, over the last ten years or so, you had that great run up, uh, and for a while it looked like a pretty pretty scary March of 2020 when COVID 19 and the lockdowns. Uh, uh, all hit us at the same time, right? 
and it looked pretty scary for all asset classes, including multifamily. And uh, as John and I on on the debt side, we certainly have seen the uh, all the lenders pulling out other than the agencies. So that was very scary. And I'm pretty sure you had uh, a lot of concerns then too. And now uh, we are a year and a half later and we are uh, uh, completely on fire in that market. Right? <laughs> So, uh, so how have uh, so how have you weathered that storm, and how have you approached uh, uh, your uh, dealing with your clients during that period? And uh, where do we stand now today with with all that? Uh, you know, great question. Uh, so, or questions, I guess I should say. I'll try to touch on them all. Uh, yeah. So, had it had previously gone through a you know, uh, the Great Recession, a down cycle. When I came into the market, we were really coming out of the uh, dot-com bust as well. So that was, you know, caught part of that cycle. And, you know, things coming up out of that uh, were, you know, exciting. You get to ride that wave is what we like to say. So, uh, you know, when the pandemic hit, and like you said, you know, second quarter was just, you know, very slow. Heading uh, reflect back on my experience at the Great Recession, I was like, you know, what what can we do to be of service to our clients? You know, that's the most important. When you're just not transacting, you know, we don't take off to, you know, Miami for you know a year <laughs> and hang out on the beach. Uh, that's not going to get much done. It is an opportunity. It was very busy uh, before then, so it was an opportunity one to focus on the business, see where we had any inefficiencies. Um, in terms of, you know, expenses we weren't managing right. It did allow us to take some time to audit the books, uh, focus on efficiencies for the business. Uh, that was exciting. Saved a lot of money on client entertainment during that period of time, I will say. Uh, <laughs> so that was, uh, uh, you know, somewhat of an unexpected positive. Uh, but more than anything, what we did that um, was very effective is we, we just shared a lot of information. Um, we did not stop calling our clients and that was one of the directives. And, hey, what are you seeing in the market? What are you doing? And just sharing information uh, from all over the market. We, we did a great job of it here in the Dallas office as well as the national platform. So during that time when everyone was locked down in their home, we still made it a point. We always have a Monday morning you know, production meeting but uh, we also had a Zoom lunch together three days a week. And we would all share stories and everything that we were hearing and you know, what's going on around the country. And then after you, you know, had that lunch and you shared that story, you could then go and call your clients and you know, share all the information that was being shared with you. So everyone can kind of get a grip on what's going on in an unstable market, because that, that's the way you can be most valuable when there's not stability, information is, is very, very powerful. And it's powerful at any time, but especially during a time like that. Um, so a couple of things that happened is, you know, everyone was pulling their properties off the market that we had just listed because it was just, the perception was, hey, you're gonna have to sell it for a discount. Um, fortunately, uh, I had a client that, you know, said, hey, I told you when I turned 75, I'm selling this thing. And, you know, let's just go forward with it and see what happens. And I said, yeah, I think that's a great idea because, you know, even if it doesn't sell and we don't achieve your objective, we can certainly say, hey, that was COVID, you know, it didn't work out and wait and bring it to market, you know, maybe a year later when things or whenever that time period is when things get better. Um, so one thing we discovered through that was uh, there was still demand for buying apartments, but there was no supply on the market. I mean, literally none. That apartment complex was the second one to hit the market after everything shut down during COVID. So uh, we had, an, after that was going extremely well, we had lots of tours, lots of interest. We ultimately sold it for above list price with you know, uh, a lot of non-refundable earnest money the same day to a very qualified buyer. We brought, you know, uh, I can't remember exactly, I think it was between 15 and 18 offers on it in the middle of a pandemic. 
So we're like, hey, the message changed at that point of like, look, um, this is a good time to sell your property because there's very little competition on the market. You know, there is no supply. You have an opportunity to bring your property to the market when there's no supply. Interest rates are going to an historic low. Uh, and, you know, what people are underwriting right now is, is pretty flat. You know, once we got past, I'd say, you know, about June and everyone saw that, hey, rents aren't going away. People are still paying rent. You know, this doesn't seem to be a problem. Uh, that, that increased investors' confidence that everything, you know, was either going to be the same or increasing for the rest of the year. And then, you know, hopefully as this passes, I think everyone thought like, hey, the pandemic's going to be over in the fall. Obviously, it didn't go that well. But, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, people were projecting like, hey, after that, we'll be able to increase rents. So we had another property on the market, same deal. We achieved over list price. And, you know, that, that, that convinced that particular um, ownership group not to pull their property off the market. And we were able to go forward with both and it was successful. And uh, at the end of the year, we ended up having a record year over the prior year by 20% over our production of the previous year. So, you know, by not slowing down and sharing information, uh, it really paid off in the end. Yep, that's uh, that's great to hear. Uh, I think certainly in the multifamily space, we had the advantage that financing was still available, right? In some other of the other asset classes like hospitality and retail in particular, uh, virtually none of the financing sources were, were even available. On the uh, multifamily side, it was still pretty tough, right? As you probably recall, bridge lenders, a lot of them moved yeah. out. CMBS lenders shut it down for, yeah. uh, for, for several months, but we had the agencies, right? And uh, they were the saving grace to, to, to keep that confidence going. And then once everyone saw, hey, we, we have actually still the rents, as you just mentioned, to people still pay rents, then everyone realized, I think this is the asset class to be in. Yes. And, you know, like you said, we always have the agencies or we have always had the agencies to kind of bail us out during uh, any sort of downturn and interest rates go lower and that always helps. But where we are today is amazing versus this time last year, if you think about it, because I mean, I, I don't know about uh, what you all are experiencing. I'd be curious if you, you would tell me, but um, we're finding 85% of our transactions are bridge debt. Um, so we're just not doing, you know, near the volume of agency that we anticipated that we would do this year. Um, and talking to our other offices around the nation, they're experiencing the exact same thing, even in like Detroit. So, you know, you take two very extreme different markets, but bridge debt seems to be, you know, the, the uh, favored, um, you know, debt right now. Is that what yeah, you're that's, that's definitely the case. Uh, we'd say if, uh, in the multifamily, it's only 80% plus, right? Uh, over the last six months, we have seen... Uh, uh, even for stabilized properties. It's just that uh, there is so much uh, of a demand for these assets. Uh, if, if anyone wants to have a, a leverage that is above 65 or 70% in some of the, uh, the, uh, the top markets, that's where you end up, right? So it's just, yeah. a, just the reality. Uh, there are some, obviously, mostly family offices and institutionals and then private individuals that are fine with lower leverage, but uh, it's only a large number of, of investors, whether you're syndicators or, or funds, they need to work with a leverage that is at that 70% plus. And right now, bridge uh, loans are really the only viable option in most instances. Right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, everyone has a business plan. There's value add is, you know, been popular for a very long time now. Um, I, I've gone back and looked at underwritings that I did way back in, you know, 2000, 2002 range. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I didn't remember it this way, but I did, you know, see the statement value add many times throughout my proposal. 
uh, of, you know, hey, what can you do to add value to the apartments? It's always been there. Um, and if you think about any business that you're selling, hey, what, what inefficiencies are there that I can come in and fix and, you know, increase the value of that business. But, uh, you know, that with uh, bridge debt, I just think, you know, what happened is obviously a lot of people achieved their business plans sooner than anticipated and had these huge prepayment penalties. And, you know, they planned on holding for five to 10 years and, you know, they achieved their business plan in three and they got a, you know, one plus million dollar prepayment penalty that they don't necessarily want to digest. Um, so uh, I, I, I hope it's not an overcorrection into bridge. Um, that's one thing that kind of concerns me of, you know, how much bridge debt is getting done and, you know, when that comes due, what, what do interest rates look like uh, on the agencies or, you know, on the permanent loans when those are takeouts. Um, so that's uh, something that we're watching here um, is if, you know, people get over their skis a little bit with these business plans, but I mean, the fundamentals are still really good for it. Uh, it's just a concern that there's so much of it, but there's nothing on the horizon that would, you know, um, make me think that you wouldn't be able to achieve your business plan. I mean, uh, you know, rents are going up, as you all know, you know, about 10% in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, year to date. Uh, so, you know, we anticipate we'll be, you know, well above 10% by the time year end rolls around. In uh, areas like Collin County, you know, we're seeing 20% rent increases. Uh, so, you know, that's the overall average is 10. There are certain, you know, more attractive markets uh, that, are, that are doubling that and more. Uh, so it's exciting to see, you know, we still have the in-migration going on here uh, from all over the country and outside of it. Um, we, you know, slowed down on uh, the number of units that we're adding to the pipeline. So I think that will, you know, also help, uh, you know, keep rents trending the right way. Uh, again, it's just supply and demand. Um, we have more demand for apartments than we're supplying right now. As long as that continues, I believe, you know, we'll, we'll all be okay. So Todd, a quick question. You, you just a little bit previously mentioned, you know, going to market last year with a couple of properties, a little bit surprised with the overall demand, you know, my question I'd have is maybe, um, you know, what about the quality of the buyer and the packages that you were getting, you know, just how well qualified folks were, Did, you know, is there any kind of material change as far as, um, you know, folks that are put in an LOIs, you know, a year ago versus today? And, you know, how do you think that's impacting, you know, what sellers are thinking about as far as, you know, bringing to a property to market or not? Uh, yeah, so, you know, we always, you know, need to qualify our buyers, especially, you know, amongst properties that we are, you know, listing and going through the full call for offers process, um, you know, first round, second round, sometimes third round. Uh, the difference is, is not great between what they were last year and now, but what the difference is, is there is so much supply in the market now. It's much like the rest of the economy where, you know, you had this pause and the supply chain was broken. Um, it seems to be like multifamilies almost advanced beyond that. You know, when everyone, it's, it's the sudden stop start that kind of messed things up in this pandemic. And, and it's true for, for sales as well. There are, there's a lot of product on the market right now. So as brokers, what we're having to do is spend more time on the phone with these qualified buyers and keeping them focused on the opportunity because there are so many shiny objects in their periphery that you can easily lose their attention. And they're like, hey, we're gonna go over and we're gonna work on this one. We don't wanna wait two to three weeks for the call to offers. You know, I've got an opportunity right now. I'm pulling out of this opportunity. And uh, so it just, it takes a lot more follow-up. Um, you know, whereas last year, like I said, it was between 15 and 18 offers on that asset. Uh, I bet if I brought it to market now this year, it would probably be approximately half of that, the number of offers. Again, we're going to bet the offers. So they're going to be, you know, there'll always be some tire kickers mixed in there. Um, but I would say, you know, you'll have half the number of qualified buyers today bidding on an asset than you had last year. 
We're still achieving the list price. Our uh, average right now, we're averaging 101.4% of list to sell ratio. So we're definitely still hitting our numbers, but it's more challenging than it was this time last year. That's an interesting point. Uh, uh, obviously, last year was really unique, right? Where, yeah. uh, where everyone was putting everything on, on hold. And you mentioned the, uh, the supply chain uh, in, 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 in different uh, industries. And it's, it's kind of, it's, it's true in multifamily. It was uh, kind of similar. Everyone put, uh, put a stop on, on their supply because they wanted to see what was going to happen. Uh, and that was only beneficial for the ones that were willing to put their properties out there. Uh, when have you seen kind of that shift from, uh, from from where we were a year ago to where we are today, where now you you have to uh, work much harder to to get the attention from from your prospective buyers. Was that a couple of months ago, or is it six months ago, or when? Do you... Um, you know, I'd say between three and five months. Um, you know, it seemed to happen kind of beginning of summer ish. We started noticing this of like, wow, why aren't we getting as many offers and as many tours as we were having previously. Um, and we, you know, you always self-analyze and, you know, we have the meetings and, you know, how many offers are you getting? And, and, you know, we didn't know if it was something we were doing wrong <laughs> or what was, you know, and, and we just were, we're friendly with, you know, many of our competitors and, you know, sure. we talk and they were experiencing the same thing. Um, so, you know, it was a bit of a relief that it wasn't us. Uh, but at the same time, it is just a reality that, you know, we have to work with. Um, and, you know, it will, I think what else accelerated the sales for this year that we, I feel like, you know, there could be uh, a trend back to a normal supply next year is the pending tax hikes. Sure. Uh, that motivated a lot of owners that are, you know, in their sunset years to say, hey, you know, I, I might not live to see another cycle. So I'm going to go ahead and just exit now and pay the lowest capital gains tax rate that I'll probably ever see in my lifetime and move on. Um, so we, we do have a handful of those as well. Um, so, you know, I think kind of, it's not a perfect storm, but a couple of things came together to really increase the amount of supply on the market. And I think a good scare always gets everyone to sell, <laughs> you know, sure. like if you, yeah. if you, you know, you, you almost just fell off the edge of the cliff, but you pulled back and, you know, Hey, it's, you know, your investments are still worth what they were prior to that scary incident, or maybe even more afterwards. You're like, I am gambling over here on some level. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, I better uh, go ahead and cash in my chips because I've already won. And, you know, what am I doing here really by, you know, how much more am I going to win uh, if I hang on? Yeah, that's an excellent point. Uh, I think when, when we look at that storm, that perfect storm, uh, we may also have seen it a little bit on the buyer side, right, with everyone obviously knows that we, we uh, when it comes to bonus depreciation, it's some, uh, it will it will phase out right and uh, so it's there is an incentive to to buy properties this year and uh and still next year uh so i, I think that's only also what has helped together with the uh, uh record low interest rates where people realized hey i think this is now still a good opportunity to jump in uh, and that was probably initially where a lot of these buyers were were jumping on it, and now a lot of them have already covered their their bases, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how how it goes next year, right? Uh, whether it's balancing out, as you were mentioning. Yeah, we'll see. Um, you know, the crystal ball isn't always one hundred percent clear, but um, you know, it, it just depends on what uh, you know tax changes actually get through and you know which ones don't when we're wrestling with on a um, personal acquisition uh, on a development of just developing paper lots um, 
it, it's a relatively short-term hold. And so we're like, ah, look, it's short-term capital gains versus long-term capital gains. And we're like, it's next year. There like, might not be a difference. Who cares? <laughs> you know, yeah. we'll just go ahead and we'll do the six month turnaround instead of, you know, trying to, you know, string it out over a year to save some, some tax dollars. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think what a lot of people like, look, there's a lot of different ways you can avoid uh, paying capital gains, you know, whether it be the obvious 1031 exchange, Delaware statutory trust, um, you know, the uh, opportunity zone fund, uh, you could put it in, there's, you know, tax deferred trusts, there's many vehicles um, that, you know, you can, you can put the proceeds in to either delay the gain or, uh, you know, just avoid it altogether. So, um, you know, there's, there'll still be transactions, uh, people will figure it out. Uh, I think one thing though, if, if the 1031 exchange does go away, um, you know, or they cap it at a half a million or a million or, or whatever's being proposed right now, um, there'll be a bit of a pause in the market. Um, I think, you know, that it constitutes approximately, you know, 10 to 20% of our transactions are, are 1031. Um, so it's not like a massive number, you know, it's not, oh my gosh, this is going to crater the economy. Um, you know, we'll find alternatives, uh, for the 1031 and, and figure it out. So, uh, but th there'll be a pause. Like what I find what's happened through many cycles is, you know, for example, I, I think you would know Anton too. I think you, you feel this as well. Um, when interest rates like bump up relatively quickly, like, you know, they kind of are right now. Um, I haven't looked at what the 10 year was today, but I know it's 1.61. I, you know, last time I looked a day or two ago, um, and you know, that, that went up what 30 basis points in a matter of about three weeks or so. Um, that's a relatively, you know, quick increase. Um, we find that when they go up about a point and where it does impact pricing at some point where there's just a pause for about six months and transactions really slow, if not stop for that six month period of time, whatever you had in the pipelines, probably okay. But no one's going to start a new transaction because no one wants to believe the value of their asset just declined due to interest rates going up. And it, it really takes about six months for that to resonate um, on both sides, you know, buy side, sell side, and then it picks back up again. So um, that's just, you know, uh, our experience over, over the years that we've done it. Uh, we'll all be okay. The fundamentals are just so good here in Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, people are itching to get in. We, we haven't seen this sort of activity from East Coast uh, money and buyers uh, in, in my 21 year career, you know, we've always had the California money coming this way. Um, but now, you know, and we've always had East Coast money coming this way too, but not at this level. Um, there's a lot more interest to come to Texas. Um, I don't know, it's just, uh, so now we've got it coming from both sides instead of one side. Um, so we'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's only, uh, Dallas and Fort Worth certainly has been put on the, uh, on the map in a much stronger fashion. Obviously it helps with, uh, major headquarters moving to, <laughs> to Dallas and Texas. Why even if, uh, Elon Musk moves to Austin, it still helps the, the recognition of every market in Texas. Uh, yeah. and all the other companies too, right? So that's, that's definitely beneficial within Dallas. Would you, do you see any, any changes in what sub markets, uh, buyers are considering more desirable today than, than, uh, a year or two years ago or pre COVID? Um, you know, pre-COVID, I don't know that there's a large interest. There hasn't, you know, I, I feel like, you know, the submarkets have not been uh, impacted, you know, relatively speaking. They all are about as desirable as they were at any given point in time. I have seen, and you and I worked on a transaction, um, you know, a, a few years back called the El Rancho in the Las Vegas Trail area of Fort Worth. And I know that there are some old school 
investors that just that's a no fly zone for them of like man that's you know that area is that's a tough sub market you're going to struggle over there and you know the gentleman that we sold it to uh couldn't be happier they've you know done great they've achieved great things uh you know they've implemented their business plan and it's been a very successful investment for them so you know uh that's neat to see of uh, like you know that area just especially like during the uh, Great Recession, had such, um, you know, I guess, uh, an undesirable, um, you know, hue to it <laughs> that, that people, and, but people viewed it back then as like, hey, this is an opportunity because, you know, the assets are so affordable over here. Um, and, you know, that, I think that uh, has changed you know some of the, the areas like woodhaven las vegas trail um you know south dallas it's just you know we say it's very salt and peppery you could cross a street you're in a good sub market or you know you on the other side of the street you're you're not um so it's just that's the importance of the boots on the ground of really knowing what you're doing um i would say like west dallas um has been very desirable uh we um have found that, you know, uh, around the Bishop Arts area and, you know, uh, with the uh, new new deck park going in over 35, um, you know, we've seen a, a lot of desire to get in that submarket. It's kind of getting ahead of it of like, look, the, this area is changing a lot. The city's obviously putting a lot of money into it. There's large portions of it that have been marked as opportunity zone. Uh, so you have the OZ funds going into those areas too. Um, East Dallas, I swear, every time I drive through it, it changes like you wouldn't believe. Um, you know, it, there's still the salt and peppery nature of East Dallas as well. But man, it's really trended to, you know, just new construction all over. Um, one of my clients just, you know, they were building like a small, I want to say 12 unit town home development before they even got it completed. Uh, they have it in escrow at 420,000 a unit for new construction over there. Whereas the prior year in December, we sold a 2014 construction, I believe it was for about 360,000 a unit um, on a six unit complex. So, um, you know, I think that infill area is back uh, you know, obviously th there was some stigma during COVID to, you know, being in the core, um, but it's weathered it relatively well. Yeah. So it doesn't look like Dallas has been that much affected right, uh, by that stigma. Uh, obviously yeah. all the markets have, but Dallas, it doesn't look that way. Right? Well, and I've been asked the question many of time, like, you know, well, where, where are the tenants looking to go? What's more desirable? like look there's not a right answer to that question you know they're both i mean you know we do have demographically uh people are you know getting to be of the age where yeah they're going to move out to the burbs and you know if they can't afford a home you know they're going to rent a home you know the bill for rent product has become so popular right now we're working on a lot of those projects um so you know um i don't know the market just kind of you know figures it out of like look, you know, I, I, I've said like, I feel like a home's always been more desirable to rent to most folks. Maybe, you know, if you're single, you know, uh, in straight out of uh, college or within, you know, 10 years, I should say, of coming out of college, look, an apartment community is, is nice. You get to meet more people. I met a lot of my friends when I moved to Dallas that way, and I still have that core group of friends. But like at some point, you know, you always want a little bit more space. You always want a little yard, you know, something like that. So it just seems to be the natural next step in evolving. I said, even through college, you know, you start out in the dorm and then they let you move to an apartment. And then after the apartment, you get a group of friends together that you met at the apartments and you rent a house, you know, so you can throw parties with everyone. <laughs> and, That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems to, you know, play out that way in adulthood too. So it's kind of fun. Yeah. To see. Yeah. That's a, it's an excellent point, right? So we, we progress through life, right? And when we look back, what was okay for us during the college years, 
uh, we are wondering how on earth did we live like that <laughs> everyone does <laughs> yeah uh, man college kids have it a lot better than i had now i'll tell you go see student housing it's like you get to live in a cruise ship uh while you're going to college i mean ours was like uh you know, I think they, they held together the apartments with uh, gum and duct tape, as far as I could tell. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely have changed that, particularly the, uh, the college supply dorms uh, uh, were, were not nearly as nice as the, <laughs> yeah. the housing that uh, we see now today by, by, by third parties that built them, right? <laughs> oh, it's phenomenal. So we live... Uh, you know, right now, about a mile away from UTD and my son plays soccer. And so we go and that's where he practices. And one thing that if you haven't been on a campus in a while uh, and seen this, they have little cars that are robots going around on the sidewalks and they're delivering food and supplies and everything. So you can order stuff that way. Literally a robot shows up in front of the dorm. You walk downstairs, punch in a little code, take your food or your supplies and, you know, go back to your room uh i mean they're living in the future out there it's it's pretty cool to see yeah definitely uh it's a uh, uh, it's a different world right uh, uh what our our uh students see today than what what we saw that's definitely the case uh, uh talking about student housing you you obviously that's not a core activity on on your end right uh, but have you have you seen some from of your colleagues what uh, how the world looks like there in the Dallas market? Yeah, well, in Dallas, um, you know, we, I mean, it just where the two, you know, I, I'd say SMU and TCU are located. Those are just really desirable neighborhoods, generally speaking. So I think they're pretty insulated from any sort of recession. Um, the only time actually that you see apartments go for sale in those areas are, you know, when you're at a peak or the peak, you know, when someone really wants to cash in, uh, they're going to hang on during any sort of downturn. Um, but we did see a couple of distressed assets at TCU during the pandemic um, from a lender and, um, you know, kind of the lesson learned there and, you know, um, talking with all the other student house, I actually had dinner with a, um, a couple of guys out of um, Tricon, which is a student housing brokerage firm in the Midwest, uh, went to Chicago a couple of weeks ago and had dinner with them. And they, um, you know, demographically, student housing is, it's okay, but you've kind of got to be right on campus or right on the main artery into campus on the bus line. And like kind of the periphery student housing that was getting built where they're stretching a little bit, you know, they are leasing by the bed, but it's like, eh, this is kind of far from campus, <laughs> you know, and this isn't really like, you know, in surrounded by other students, um, you know, it's starting to feel more like the city than it is uh, the campus. Um, so where student housing can be an extension of campus, I feel like that's a, still a really good investment, really well insulated. That periphery stuff, um, I think it's risky. Um, you know, you, you've got to count on the university growing and the demographics don't bode well for that right now. The millennials that, you know, there's a huge generation. Gen Z does not have the numbers that the millennials do. And, you know, people are questioning the value of that diploma now more than they have in the past as well. And, you know, that, then through the pandemic, you know, we, you know, the online schooling and, you know, these sort of Zoom podcast things and stuff that we're even able to do that were not, you know, hugely uh, popular just, a, you know, two, three years ago, um, you know, they've become the social norm. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's, that's why some of that periphery stuff, I think you could see some distress in that. And, you know, what we're kind of looking at is that sort of housing that's periphery that have loans coming due like this year or next, uh, because generally, you know, the agencies did not finance those. Um, it was either gonna be bank debt or CMBS or something like that. And those lenders are not as forgiving as agency. They, they can be a loan to own type lender versus, you know, um, a lender that wants to do a workout 
with you and can understand that, you know, hey, we had a hiccup in the economy. I know your loan's coming due, but let's do a one-year extension and, you know, or switch to interest only or something like that. Uh, those lenders tend to be more opportunistic. And um, so, you know, we're kind of monitoring that to see if they, there would be some distress in that sector. Yeah, interesting point. Uh, it will also be interesting to see where some of the, the large uh, operators will pick them up, right? The ones that are in that periphery you mentioned, right? So it's obviously not necessarily what they like to own and operate. Uh, question is if the price is right, whether they still would do it or not, and that remains to be seen. Uh, yeah, I think the price is right when you can underwrite it by the unit, not by the bed. Yeah, that periphery stuff. You know, that's the reset there of like, okay, I, I, you know, we probably have a bunch of two, three, and four bedrooms if it's student housing. The design's going to be a little funky compared to a, you know, traditional apartment unit. But hey, what is that unit read for to you know the general population? Yeah. And you know if it works on that level, like great. You know they're still pretty desirable areas. You know they are close. They are close to campus, and it could be the alternative of, you know, the type of student I was, the the blue collar student. You know that has to work their way through school. I mean, you know, I bartended, waited tables. I was property manager of the apartment complex I lived in, um, and I went to school full time. So, you know, there are those types of students that are more blue collar like that, that have to make it work. And, you know, I was happy to live on the periphery and ride my bike an extra mile to save, you know, several hundred bucks a month. That was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. So do you see based on your discussions that uh, some market rent prospective owners would be willing to pick up some of those and convert them from the student housing model to, to a, to a, a, a regular uh, multifamily property. Yeah, or like a traditional conventional. Right, yeah. Yes, but the income generally gets cut down on that. Right, so, you sure know, it's, it does, it's yeah. What's the seller's tolerance for pricing? And, you know, in the example that I gave you with the two properties that were around TCU, the lender was not, uh, we determined it wasn't worth spending a lot of time on. <laughs> Their <Yeah. laughs> pricing expectations, we were still too high. Not. Yeah, we wouldn't have been able to achieve them, you know, had you converted this to a traditional multifamily yeah. complex. Yeah, that's a good point. We have uh, seen something very similar in Houston, uh, kind of a property that would be uh, perfect for a conversion, but the price expectation was just still way too high. <laughs> yeah. So, Is it yeah. Uh, like a hotel? No, it's a student housing property. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, but they are still pricing it as a student housing. <laughs> hmm. uh, and uh, unfortunately, that still doesn't work to, to convert yet, right? So. Have you seen many hotel conversions come across your desk? Uh, yeah, we have seen a lot of them. Uh, the challenge there is... Uh, there are particularly the, uh, the limited service uh, properties. And I think the challenge that we see now is that there are so many prospective multifamily buyers that want to convert, that they have pushed up the prices so much that they hardly work out from a financial perspective anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So if you start paying 40,000 per unit for a, for a tiny, uh 325 350 square foot studio uh in a less desirable location uh the upside is not really that that strong anymore right so so i think that's what we have seen the initial phase was really attractive because people were able to pick up these properties at uh, maybe 10,000 12,000 per per door and now you have a lot of buyers that are willing to pay 40,000 plus. <laughs> wow. Um, what I, I always wondered on those because we, we saw a few come across our desk, but I didn't understand how it was going to work just from a parking ratio perspective. Um, so that was, you know, the, cause I had several clients asking like, Hey, should we do this? Seems like an opportunity. We didn't see, I don't feel like we saw much distress in the hotel industry here in Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, Houston got hit particularly hard, um, but, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth seemed to weather that storm a little bit better. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I, I was just, you know, I, I said, look, I just, I don't see how you crack that code of like, we don't have enough parking to make this multifamily. And unless you're going to pick up some from maybe the retail center next door, cause you're going to buy that too. You know, I, I don't see how you crack this code. Yeah, it's a typically what where we have seen where it works best is in in not in a, in a core market or top market like Dallas and Fort Worth, even Houston is too dense, but it works well in in the secondary and tertiary markets. Whether it's the the parking tends to be not such a big issue, uh, and also where the cities are are much more. Uh, welcoming to such conversions. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I'm still. Uh, I still do not see that that uh, that they are actually working out from a financial <laughs> perspective for some of these buyers, unless again they bought them at the ten thousand, twelve thousand per per door, right? Yeah. So that. Where it's like, I can't make a mistake at that price, <laughs> you know, you're, you're buying a, it, you know, well below replacement cost, the bricks and sticks, you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've got an interesting project that we're bringing to market uh, here in the next uh, week or two that is a, uh, was built in Las Colinas, you know, the Irving submarket there, uh, right off of Royal and uh, George Bush. And, uh, you know, by Hackberry Country Club called Waterwalk. And it is about 50% multifamily and 50% hotel. And largely one building that is the multifamily, except one, one floor on that one. And then, you know, the other one's pretty much, you know, run as a hotel. Um, and, you know, that seems to work in terms of the parking ratios and that sort of thing. Um, and you know it's it's a really unique asset, but uh, the pricing's good on it at uh, at our whisper price. It's 153 units at a whisper price of 30 million. Um, you know we see it as a 7.3 cap operating as is today. Yeah. Um, so you know people come to us though, and you know as we did a coming soon, and you know at, at first we were saying well. A lot of people are like, well, what if we converted all the multifamily? Because obviously you lower your cap rate multifamily, and that's the perceived, hey, I'm increasing the value. We've run the traps on it. And it, what makes the most sense, in my opinion, is just keep running it the way it is, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you will cut your income uh, like a, virtually a million dollars on this asset, take it multifamily, lower your cap rate. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I don't think you're going to have as much value if you just get the nat natural appreciation uh, yeah. from the multifamily and hotel side. So, yeah. real unique yeah. asset. Though. Yeah, that's uh, is is that uh, operated under a major flag or is it just a? Uh... Yeah, Waterwalk is a flag. Okay. Um, I don't know how major it is. <laughs> I know there's <laughs> one other in uh, Richardson. Uh, okay, it's, it's real close to where I live, and okay. I've seen it. It's like a very similar development, um, but. Uh, you know, it, it does take a hotel uh, operator. operator. Yeah, right. uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. you know, you do, you're going to have to pay a hotel operator. And, you know, they love the multifamily side because, you know, that's easy peasy for them. Sure, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. So they built that originally in that fashion? Yes, they that's... did. Uh, it is a PD with, uh, you know, the city of Irving, Las Colinas. Uh, Allowed and. To. Yeah, they, they allow for that, which, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I've sold a lot of different stuff over my, you know, uh, tenure here as a broker, uh, and the hotel is something that I've, you know, barely dipped my toe in the water on, um, and the only reason that we'll sell any other type of asset type is, you know, one, to help uh, a client of ours in a 1031, they're getting out of multifamily, um, or two, they're just a really good client. And they said, hey, we want to list our office building with you. And I'm like, well, I don't really do that. They're like, we don't care. We're going <laughs> to, <laughs> all right. <laughs> this yeah. like an interesting idea. I'll do it, I guess. But that, that's what led me to different product types. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that's it's kind of a neat deal. And I think there might be something to it. It was constructed in 2018. But we're seeing in East Dallas, for example, an incredible amount of VRBOs on um, some of those rentals. Like, you know, it is financing prohibitive amount 
of Airbnbs on those rent rolls. And so when you think about it, like when you do, you know, when people vacation now, they're not really looking for the bed next to the credenza in a bathroom, you know, That's right. a little kitchenette, you know, they want a little bit more space in there and, you know, to have like a little living room area that they can work in and not just sit in the bed, you know, hammering away on their laptop anymore. That's become, it's fallen out of favor, let's say. And so I, I just think, I'm like, eh, you know, they might be onto something here. Very good point, yeah. Uh, Todd, really appreciate uh, your time. You, I think you've shared a lot of information here with, uh, with our listeners. Uh, you have a unique insight into the into Dallas uh, and with your network, obviously with uh, some others, and uh, that was uh, was really valuable. Uh, John, do you have any uh, any uh, other question or comments that you would like to, to point to? No, no, thanks, Todd, for the time. Appreciate it. Very insightful. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much so for the opportunity. Yeah, so Todd, how can uh, our listeners uh, reach out to you? Obviously, you're important to, to know right? uh, whether you're a buyer in Dallas, uh, Fort Worth, or you're a seller. Uh, probably all sellers know you by now. <laughs> I would hope, but that you, know, market, you but never that's... know. It's, you don't feel like you can touch everyone as much as you'd like. Um, yeah. so, but we have a relatively large team here. Uh, there are 13 brokers, seven support staff, so there's 20 of us. But if you want to reach out to me, uh, I am, uh, it's easy enough. My email address is my name, Todd, T-O-D-D dot Franks, F-R-A-N-K-S at Greystone I-S-G. And that's G-R-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-I-S-G, like indigo sam com. All right. Great. So, uh, I encourage everyone to reach out to Todd, right, uh, he has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to uh, Dallas uh, multifamily, and it's only worthwhile to uh, to reach out to him. Thanks again, Todd, for your time, and uh, good luck for the rest of uh, 2021, and then uh, another successful year uh, uh, in uh, 2022. Thank you, and again, so much appreciate the opportunity, and you know, have a great rest of the year, and hopefully, it keeps rolling into 2022. Yeah, let's hope so. Thanks, Todd. All right. Thanks, Don. Bye now. Thanks, John. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Peak Market Watch. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes. If you're interested in receiving a free commercial real estate loan quote for your property, click the link in the description. We look forward to connecting with you on our next episode of Peak Market Watch.